And for those who don't know me, my name's Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here at New Life. And it's uh, great to be with you this morning. Today we're continuing our series in 1 Peter chapter 4. Or, sorry, our series in 1 Peter. And uh, we come to chapter 4 today. It's... Uh, as we've seen from the readings, it covers a lot of ground and uh, there's lots of different topics. And I probably could have preached about 10 sermons from the uh, material before us this morning, but I trust that I won't go quite that long. Um, so let me just pray before we start and we'll dive into the passage. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. So Lord, we pray that we'll have open hearts and minds this morning to receive what your spirit wants to teach us, how you want to challenge us, and how you want to speak to our innermost thoughts and needs and hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 really is dealing with living for Jesus in a variety of aspects, and uh, that's what we're going to dive into. But I just want to start by saying I know a number of people here we're very blessed by being raised in Christian homes. And after a time, they moved into their own personal relationship with Jesus. And they did that from a very solid background of a Christian home. But quite a few of us came from a background that was not Christian. And we came to a point in our lives where we decided, made that decision to follow Jesus. And this decision often marked a significant change in the way we lived our lives and how we viewed the world. I gave my life to Jesus when I was around 15 years old. And when I did, I found that my life was somehow different. I wanted to know more about Jesus and his way of doing life. I found my attitudes towards people changed to become more compassionate, more caring. I found my worldview, the worldview changed and I wanted to serve God and his church. When Peter wrote to the early church, he wrote to Christian believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor and he wrote about 60 AD. Many were experiencing persecution and suffering because they believed in Jesus, they had faith in Jesus. 1 Peter basically is a church as a whole. Does that mean? Sorry. Stop. Do I stop moving? <laughs> okay. It's the best movement you're going to see out of me all day. Anyway. <laughs> Peter is writing to a persecuted church. Peter is writing to encourage the believers and to help them address some of the issues they've faced living in a pagan society, a pagan environment. Because in the face of criticism, verbal and physical abuse, oppression, rejection, ostracism, the great temptation was for these believers to throw it all in, throw in the towel and go back to their previous way of living. It was all just getting too hard. And as, as I was reflecting on this, I thought, yeah, well, how does that connect with us today? We, we live in a pretty comfortable, safe, secure. The relevance for us 
of, of, of this passage and uh, why it's, it's written to a persecuted church. But the temptation for us these days is we've got a good life. So how does this speak to us? What is the temptation, the greatest temptation for us to throw in our Christian faith? I'd have to say, everyone here has made a commitment. You are here this morning, a Sunday morning, and you all have very busy, committed lives. You're involved in lots and lots of stuff. And you're giving up a Sunday morning, precious time, to come and worship together with other believers. Now, I think for a lot of people, they say, oh, I can think of a whole lot of better things to do with my time than go to church today. And there's lots of things we can do. And that's the, that's the temptation of this day and age. There's so many, in inverted commas, so much better things, so many better things to do than actually coming to worship God, to spend time with him and his people. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. So when we come to 1 Peter 4... Peter's encouraging his readers, firstly, to remember the sufferings of Christ and how he conquered sin and death on the cross. The cross is first and foremost. Focus on Jesus. That's the main reason we're here. You see, faith in Christ ushers in a whole new way of living. And as a result, Peter writes in verse 2, they do not live the rest of their lives for even evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You see, Peter's not saying that the Christian believer is now perfect and that sin is no longer a problem for us. Indeed, he urges us to forsake sin. And yet there is a distinctive, decisive difference. We have died to sin and have gained the freedom to live according to the will of God. As a result, our lives are now different. So Peter contrasts their new freedom in Christ to how they used to live as pagans, not the batteries. Not me either. Hmm? Gone? I'm not sure what that is. It's going to plague us. You know, I can't wave both hands around. <laughs> okay, we'll do it with a handheld. Brilliant. Um, okay, so there's a contrast between the old way of living and the new way of living. The old way of living as pagans involves living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies carousing and detestable idolatry. It's part of the reason I didn't do the pictures, uh, pretty pictures for this sermon. Uh, it's going to be a real challenge there. But the people Peter is writing to had been there. They'd been involved in that way of living. They'd done that. And, you know, those things produced no lasting benefit for them or satisfied the desires of their hearts. They provided fleeting pleasures a bit of escapism, but these things gave them no lasting, meaningful peace in their lives, no lasting joy in their lives. Peter says they actually wasted their time living this way. But Peter's readers, their lives have now changed and they should have no further interest in that kind of behaviour, behaviour that's immoral and offensive to God. And yet having made this decision, they are now subject to the criticism and abuse of their former acquaintances who continue 
in reckless wild living, to use Peter's words. They didn't understand what had happened to the new Christian believers. They wanted to do things differently. And through their understanding, they criticised, they abused, they made fun of the Christians. And that's, that was a really sad thing. But that happens today too, doesn't it? It happens when we encounter people who do not understand our attitudes to things like excessive drinking, taking drugs, using coarse language, sexual promiscuity, pornography, just to name a few of the things that are very uh, out there in our community these days. Peter encouraged his readers to resolve, to make a decision, to stand firm about how they're going to live the rest of their years. Not for worldly passions, but rather for the will of God. And even though they found that the world was very much against them, Peter explains this as a visible expression of the end times. It's a bit of a mouthful. But have a look at verse 7, where it says... Technology is going to challenge me this morning, isn't it? Uh, Verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near. The end of all things. Judgment day is coming, folks. There will be a day when Jesus returns, and on that day, he will judge every single person. They will have to give an account for what they have done in this life. That's a bit frightening. We don't know when that day will come, but it's coming. The early Christian believers expected it to occur any day. and We should live our lives in the same way, expecting that day to come at any point in time. It could even be today. The question is, are you ready? Judgment is coming. The end of all things is near. And so Peter says they must determine to be sober-minded for the sake of their prayers and to continue loving one another with heartfelt service and hospitality. So Peter picks up the theme of suffering later in the chapter after he looks at the uh, appropriate use of spiritual gifts. And I just want to do a bit of a little bit of a sidetrack into looking at spiritual gifts and their use before we uh, finish with the topic of suffering. So, firstly, the origin of our gifts... Happened there. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Note that we have all received gifts. When you become a Christian believer, you receive a gift or gifts from God. They're spiritual gifts. And they are the source of those gifts are, is from God. However, it's easy to discredit our own abilities to sort of Yeah, not really think too highly of our own gift. Particularly when we see others who can do things so much better than us. But just because you can't cook or play very well or play a musical instrument as well as you'd like doesn't mean to say that you aren't gifted or that you shouldn't use your gift, however small. Gifts are given not just to a select few people, but gifts. God gives gifts to every single member of his church. And whether your gifts are big or small or showy or quiet or not, they all come 
from the same Holy Spirit. So that's the origin of gifts. They come from God. The purpose of our gifts is to serve others. Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) How counterintuitive this idea is that we should not use what we have to serve ourselves but to serve others. It goes against everything the world out there tells us. Look after number one. Who's the most important person in this world? Me. But the purpose of our gifts is to serve others. So understanding the biblical conception of how we are to use our gifts really smashes a dent into the world's idea of self-promotion and self-indulgence. Spiritual gifts are imparted to us to be used to serve others and for building up the body of Christ. What's more, there's a diversity of gifts. And Peter just mentions two here. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Each of us, as I said, is given different gifts to serve in various capacities. And this is important because we often covet other people's gifts while undermining the gifts God's given us. But we all have a distinct role to play in the body of Christ. We're all given different gifts for different purposes in his body, the church. And when all those gifts are in operation, when everybody is using the gift that God's blessed them with, the church is a powerful thing. It's a wonderful thing to behold. But furthermore, we must draw our confidence and strength from the Holy Spirit. He equips us. And he equips us to bless others with our gifts rather than just rely on our own abilities. When we speak, Peter says, we depend on the Spirit to give us the words to say. When we serve others, we rely on the Holy Spirit to serve us with the strength, to supply us with the strength we need. We have a power source. We need to get plugged into that power source in order to use our our gifts. And finally, the goal of our gifts. Peter writes, So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We are urged to use our gifts to honour Jesus in everything we do. The term all things. Very important little word. All, three letters. You see it right through the Bible. But it says all things. The Bible wouldn't be saved the same without that word. But when Peter uses the term all things, it determines the scope of how our gifts are to be used. And it begs the question, and it's a personal question, do I use my gifts so that in everything I do, everything I say, that God is glorified, God is honoured, if you use your gifts so that everything you are glorified, then I think you need to sense the urgency of the end times. You need to resolve right now not to be some kind of gluttonous Christian who eats their fill and never helps out at the table. Can I encourage you to make a change to be a steward who ensures others are receiving what they need? And what better way to start than to look for ways to serve in our church? a church that can be filled with the gifts that God has given us. So just summarising this section, Peter is saying 
that in spite of opposition to their way of living and the temptation to return to their old pagan ways of living, Christian believers need to keep looking to Jesus, remembering that there are benefits to living God's way and benefits to living in a godly community of fellow believers. They were to look to the building up of God's people and maturing as believers and not just focusing on how hard life was. There is also the reminder that we live in the end times. The day of judgment is coming when all people have to give an account of their actions before God. So then Peter returns in uh, verses 12 to 19 and looks at this subject of suffering, a very difficult one. Many people struggle with this issue of suffering and I imagine many of them are asking the same question we do. How can a good and loving, caring God allow people, and particularly Christian people, to suffer? Well, in this next little section from verses 12 through to 14, Peter talks about suffering for doing good, for being a believer. And he's not talking about suffering which happens because we are human beings living in a fallen world. Our bodies do wear out. We do die. And as we age, come the aches and pains of age of advancing years. He's also not talking about suffering that we cause ourselves by the choices we make. For example, if I get sick through living an unhealthy lifestyle uh, or through careless eating, not exercising enough, that's a choice I've made. And I may suffer from those choices. So Peter addresses this issue of suffering for your faith and he says that there are four th- some things that, four things that you need to do when you suffer as a Christian. Firstly, realise that suffering will happen. In verse 12 it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This is not unusual. This is a fiery ordeal. There is persecution. There is suffering. Don't be upset when this happens, when people put you down or when people challenge your faith. He says, don't be frightened or anxious. Don't get caught off guard. Be aware that this can happen. Be prepared. Now, Jesus was very realistic about this. He said we need to consider the consequences of commitment to him. He said, if you're going to follow me, count the cost first. Living the Christian life is not always a bed of roses, uh, said Jesus. He said, if you follow me, there are people who will get upset with you, who don't approve of you, who don't like what you're doing. In John fifteen twenty, Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, <clears throat> they will persecute you also. We sometimes forget that we are in a spiritual battle. But once you decide to be on God's side, you become an enemy of the devil. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. You know, Satan would like to hurt God, but he can't. He's tried, he failed. 
and say, you know what? He does the next best thing. He tries to hurt his children. That's us. Because we believe in Jesus. And you know what? If you really wanted to hurt me, the easiest way to do that is to hurt my children. You hurt my kids, you hurt me. So Satan tries to get back at God by hurting his children, those who put their faith in Christ. Suffering will happen. Secondly, he says to rejoice when suffering happens. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter says, don't complain, celebrate. Sounds a bit masochistic to me, doesn't it? It's like you've got a martyr complex. It's ridiculous. Would you suffer? Celebrate. But you know, the key word is the word rejoice. It doesn't say enjoy it when you're put down for Christ. It says rejoice. And there's a big difference between enjoyment and rejoicing. Enjoyment means getting pleasure out of something. But rejoicing means choosing to have a positive attitude in spite of it. God says, God doesn't say we need to enjoy persecution. He says rejoice in it. He says keep a positive, positive attitude. And you know, that comes down to making a choice to do that. It's a choice. Peter lists a couple of reasons why we should rejoice. Firstly, suffering draws us closer to God. You know, as we go through times of suffering, we are able to draw on God's strength and power to sustain us. He will walk through difficult times, tough times with us. He'll be right there with us. And it's often through these times that we're forced onto our knees to draw on God's provision, to seek him. And in doing so, we draw closer to God. And when we go through the fire for Jesus, when we are persecuted for his sake, we go through the fire with Jesus. And we find ourselves growing closer and growing deeper in our relationship with him. Secondly, it means that God can be seen in our life. You know, when you're having a tough time for Jesus' sake, it means God can be, some, can be seen in your life. It says in verse 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Why can I be happy when people put me down for my faith or they challenge me? Because it just means somebody sees something different in my life. Obviously they noticed that that something was different. You know, if you've never been challenged about your faith, what does that say about your faith? Jesus said, anyone who is ashamed of me in this wicked and adulterous generation, of him will I be ashamed before my father when he comes in glory. God basically says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus was not ashamed to die for each and every one of us. So can I encourage you not to be ashamed to live for him? Peter says, when you're put down for your faith, refuse to be ashamed. Don't be intimidated by cynics, by critics. 
Don't run from situations that put your faith in trial. People are watching us all the time. If you claim to be a Christian believer, unbelievers will throw stuff at you just to see how you react, how you respond. They want to know if your faith is genuine. They want, does your walk match your talk? Do you really believe what you say you believe? Is this person a person of integrity? Is this person a person who really has convictions? Is it real to them? Because if it's not, the unbeliever will say, oh, well, I'm not, not interested. Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There are many good Christians who would never think of doing certain wrong things, but they are ashamed to admit that they do the right thing when they're around unbelievers. Peter is saying it's not a matter of doing bad things. It also means being glad and being honest and admitting that you do the right things and not being embarrassed about that. Don't be embarrassed about your faith for your values. Don't be embarrassed about them, but stand firm. I think the problem really is the fear of rejection. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. So what's the antidote? What's the answer to that? Well, the antidote to the fear of rejection is twofold. Firstly, realise that you don't need the approval of everybody in order to live a happy life. You don't need the approval of everybody in order to be happy in life. Whether you approve of me or not has nothing to do with my happiness. And secondly, be concerned more about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. That's called spiritual maturity, when you think more about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. Remember, if we share in his suffering, we'll share in his glory. Any persecution you might possibly experience because of your faith, quite frankly, is seriously so insignificant compared to the lasting reward that is not even comparable. We have a reward in, a, in heaven, a hope before us of a future, a glorious future in heaven forever and ever and ever. That's what we're looking forward to. Once we get through this life, whatever life may bring us, there is something so much better, living in glory with Christ forever. And so Peter reminds us to remain faithful to God. So that those who suffer according to God's will, he says, God's will. Sometimes suffering is exactly God's will for your life. Why? Because God is more interested in our character than in our comfort. You know, there's a certain brand of Christianity out there that says God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy and you should always be healed and you should always have prayer answered and you should always have everything you want and never have any problems. And if you do have problems, it means you don't have enough faith. There's a spiritual term for this and that is rubbish. Rubbish. Obviously those people who say those things have not read 1 Peter 4 where it says sometimes we suffer according to God's will. 
That's Christian suffering. Suffering that's redemptive for our growth and the blessing of other people. If God answered every prayer we ever made and gave us everything we ever wanted and took away all our problems, hey, we'd be spoiled brats. God isn't interested in raising spoiled brats. He says, remain faithful even when the heat's on. So I just want to finish by asking you to consider two questions. This isn't going to work. Yeah, okay, I'll ask the questions anyway. First question, do people notice Jesus in your life? Do the people who you're around all the time know where you stand? Have you shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Have you found, like, for example, if you found the cure for cancer, you'd want to tell people about it, wouldn't you? you want to share the good news. Well, we have the greatest news in the world. Thanks, Jeff. The world is often far more ready to hear about the good news of new life in Jesus than we are ready to share it. Do people notice Jesus in your life? And secondly, have you been ashamed to take a stand? You know, there are people all around us who are going to die without Christ if we don't share the good news. I would suggest that you put your fear of rejection on the shelf And start praying for one family, one person, somebody you can invite to church one Sunday. Just say, come to church with me. Now we've got the 316441 cards, got it right then, Um, which encourages to commit to praying for one year for four people on our cards. And if we do that, it's amazing what happens. Who are you praying for? If you don't, there's cards up the back. Grab one and uh, you can pray for a family member, a friend or a next-door neighbour or someone you get to meet and make that a consistent prayer throughout the year. Have I been ashamed to take a stand? Yes. I think we all have at some stage. But you know what? The good news is that God is a forgiving God. He loves us so much. He acknowledges that we aren't perfect, but we are forgiven. And that's a really wonderful thing. So can I encourage you to take a stand for Jesus? Take a stand for Jesus because it is worth it. Amen.